0: Acts is fascinating. And one of the things I I really enjoy with Acts is getting a big picture of how the whole story works. It starts in Jerusalem. Now, we, because we come to the Bible with a Christian background, think of, oh yes, Jerusalem, big place, important place. Um, In medieval maps, Jerusalem was always the center of the world actually Jerusalem was a bit of a backwater it wasn't well known it was a capital city of a province on the edge of the Roman Empire it was a bit troublesome it was very important to the Jewish people but to the rest of the world it wasn't particularly significant the book starts there but it ends in Rome the biggest city in the world at that time, the capital of a massive empire. The Christian church started off on the edges in Jerusalem. 28 chapters later, it's there right in the center of the world. In Jerusalem, there are just a few believers and they're all Jewish. By the end of Acts... There are believers from right across the empire. The church has become multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual. It's gone from being this small group, monolingual group in a backwater, to being this huge or growing group, very diverse in the capital. And Acts traces that. We often tend to read scripture in small chunks, so we miss that big picture. And there are a number of important stages as it builds up across there. In Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit falls on the disciples, and they preach to people from all over the Jewish world, and 2,000 are added to the church in one day, but they're all Jewish. Then as we read this morning, in Acts chapter 8, there are two incidents where first of all, Philip goes to Samaria to a group of non-Jews, preaches to them, and the city is filled with joy as people turn to the Lord. And then he meets an Ethiopian tourist on the road and leads him in a Bible study, and he becomes a Christian. Two chapters later, in Acts 10, Peter shares the gospel with a Roman centurion, another pagan, and his family, and they become believers, little by little. There are isolated groups of non-Jews becoming Christians. But for the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, almost every believer is Jewish. And then Acts chapter 11 happens. And the whole thing blows wide open. At the start of the passage that that Andy read to us, We see that people were spread abroad because of persecution. Now, verse 19, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. So persecution broke out. Christians started, well, they weren't called Christians yet. The people who followed Jesus started spreading around the world, and they went to the synagogues, And they shared the message of the Messiah, the one that had been promised down through the scriptures had come, and they shared it with fellow Jews. But then some men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about Jesus Christ, about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the lord this group of people from cyprus and cyrene that's from cyprus you know the island cyrene is modern day libya these are people from they're not from the center of the jewish world but they're jewish believers they go to antioch which is in syria and they start preaching to greeks to non-jews to gentiles to people that good Jews wouldn't even sit down and eat a meal with it's next to impossible for us to grasp how radical this is up till now there'd been isolated ones and twos of gentiles becoming believers now all of a sudden this group from Cyprus and Libya are running an evangelistic campaign to pagans in Syria. This just didn't happen. Jews didn't mix with Gentiles. It was shocking. And there are a number of things which give us an illustration of just how shocking this is. If you read on through the book of Acts, the controversy that is stirred up by non-Jews becoming Christians runs right through the book of Acts Paul and his followers end up fighting battle and battle with traditionalists over this the book of Romans is essentially all about this question how can Gentiles become believers in Jesus the promises in the Old Testament were all made to the Jews what's this about bringing Gentiles in Book of Galatians does the same question. This was a live issue through the New Testament. These unnamed people from Libya and from Cyprus opened Pandora's box when they started preaching to the Gentiles. Then we read in verse 22 of our passage that the church sent Barnabas down to Antioch to check what was going on. Or up to Antioch, because it was north. You know, if this had been a normal, run-of-the-mill events, there had been no reason to send one of the big guns from Jerusalem to check it out. But they did. And then the third thing to notice, and it's in um, the end of the, uh, not the end of the passage, verse twenty-six. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians, first at Antioch. Up till this point, the church, believers in Jesus, were all Jews. And everybody who knew anything about Judaism knew that there were all sorts of sects. There were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were this group, there was that group, there were followers of this person, there were followers of that person. Followers of Jesus of Nazareth were just another group among the Jews. Who cares about another Jewish group? But in Antioch, all of a sudden, there are lots of people there who aren't Jews. And they had to think of a new name. This was no longer a Jewish group, a Jewish sect like the Pharisees. It was something entirely different. So what they did was they thought of the most insulting name they could, Christian. They named this bunch after somebody who'd been executed on a cross. And in good Roman company, you didn't even mention the word cross or crucifixion because it was so unpleasant. And they picked the name, of an executed criminal to name this group. They call them Christians. 2,000 years later, we're proud of the name, but that's not how it started. But it was so radical when these groups started preaching to the Greeks, it changed everything. And unless you are Jewish, you owe your Christian faith. The fact the gospel reached us from these early practitioners in Acts who reached out to Gentiles. I'm 100% Gentile. And it was in Antioch that people like me were first reached for the gospel. It's massive. It's a huge shift. What I'd like to do is to, to think about why that is relevant for us. But just before that, just I'd like to pull out three actors in this story, just to give a bit more background. The first first set of actors are the unnamed believers. Some, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks. We don't know who they are. All we know is where they come from. We don't know their names. They did this amazing, radical thing of preaching to Greeks you oh, we got no idea who they are. They weren't from the center of the church. They were from over there somewhere. Somewhere out in the wilds. They were from the margins. And yet they were the ones who did this radical thing. They hadn't been with Jesus in the beginning. You know, they weren't some of the people who'd been there with Jesus. And there's a principle here that's been repeated down through the centuries. Christianity grows from the margins. And over time, the places that are the centers of Christian faith tend to fade. Christianity started in Jerusalem, spread out into the Roman world. Particularly North Africa was a massive center of the church and the church faded in Jerusalem. With the coming of Islam, the church faded in North Africa, but was renewed at the margin in Europe. And we're living in an age now where the church, what we might call the center of the church, Europe and North America, is fading. And yet the church is being renewed around the world. It's the margins That see growth. You see that in this passage, and we've seen it down 2,000 years of church history. And it's exciting because we're living in a day where believers from other parts of the world are breathing new life into the Christian faith and new enthusiasm. Places that were once the periphery are growing. It's a bit difficult for us living in what once was the center. That's the unnamed people. The other group I'd like to just mention are the, the, Jew, the Jerusalem church. What did the church in Jerusalem do? Well, you've got these unnamed people preaching to Greeks. Better check it out. So we read that they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check out what was going on. Who's Barnabas? Acts 4, 36 and 37 introduces us to Barnabas. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, it's it's sort of an Aramaic, a Hebrew way of saying somebody is really good at something, is to call them a son of. Uh, Encouragee, or encourager. It's, you know, his nickname basically was you're an encourager. We could do with a few more Barnabases. It's a great nickname to have. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So that's Barnabas. He was somebody who was so serious about his faith that he sold a field and, put it at the, and took the money and gave it to the apostles. Now that sounds great. It's very generous. But just think about it a moment. In an agrarian economy, for somebody who lived from what they could grow, selling a field is also mortgaging his future. Because that field would provide him and his family with food for years to come. So he didn't just, you know, it wasn't just like selling something on eBay and giving it away. He was selling his whole future and gave it to the apostles. But there's a little Detail Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. Where did the guys who went to Antioch come from? They came from Libya and from Cyprus. Barnabas comes from Cyprus. So, when the apostles saw that something new was happening, they sent Barnabas, who they knew was a real encourager, who happened to come from the same place as some of the guys who are causing the problems already. Does anybody else think that sounds a bit like a fix? The apostles weren't looking to find trouble. The apostles sent somebody who, by character, was going to be encouraging, and who probably knew half of these people anyway, because he came from the same place. The apostles sent someone who was predisposed to be positive. It's a tendency in the, for the church, especially those of us who are more conservative, Bible-believing Christians, to look for problems in other people. When we see that new things happening, we look to see what's wrong with it. The apostles did exactly the opposite. They sent someone who was almost certainly going to say, yeah, go for it. The unnamed believers, church in Jerusalem, the third person who's active in this passage is God. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. To be honest, it doesn't really matter what the unnamed believers or Barnabas or the Jerusalem church did if the hand of the Lord hadn't been with them. It was the hand, you know, they took initiative, they did good stuff, but it was the fact that the hand of the Lord was with these people that meant that many people became Christians. And this is why, quite simply, prayer is the most important work of Christian mission. Praying that God will be at work, praying that God will be active, You can do all of the missionary strategy you like. You can plan to reach however many people. You can plan to do so many Bible translations. If God's hand is not with us, if God is not at work, it's only so much wasted effort. It is absolutely key that we sense where God is at work. And we live in our situation to think back to the great revivals of the past. And yet, we're in a country and a part of the world where the church is shrinking. So we might be tempted to ask, is God really at work? Or has God backed off? And he doesn't care anymore. And what I'd like to do For the rest of the sermon is try and demonstrate why I believe that's not the case and that God really is at work in our world today. Sometimes people will play a game a sort of you know a, um, a thought experiment what period in history would you like to go back to and somebody who's quite spiritual will say well I'd like to go back and hear Spurgeon preaching And somebody who's even more spiritual will say, well, I'd like to go back and hear Whitfield and Wesley. And then the really super spiritual ones will say, I'd like to go back and listen to Jesus. Frankly, unless they speak Aramaic, that's a waste of time. But that's another story. I want to stay here and now. There are a few reasons for that. One is, I like a nice comfortable bed and a duvet and you don't get those if you go back into the past. I'm also 60, and in most eras of history, I'd have been dead a few years ago. I'm quite living in an age where you can live to be as old as I am, if that makes sense. The other thing is this is genuinely the most exciting time in Christian history ever. People are becoming Christians at a faster rate than they have ever done before. There are more people becoming Christians now than we have ever seen in history. We're not seeing it now, part of the world, not to the same extent, but that doesn't mean that God is not active around the world. In 1951, there was not a single Christian recorded in the country of Nepal in the census. 1951, not a single Nepali Christian. By 2011, there were over a third of a million. And given the Christians in Nepal often face persecution, it's thought that that figure is seriously underreported. The church has gone from nothing to 300,000 or more in 60 years. That's a phenomenal rate of growth. In 2004, there were 18 million Chinese people who were members of the official church. 18 million members of the official church in China in 2004. By 2016, there were 38 million. 18 million in 2004. 38 million in 2011. And that's the official church. It's reckoned that the underground church is three or four times bigger than the official church. That means there are over 100 million believers in the People's Republic of China. 100 million Christians meeting today in China. That's getting on for twice the population of the United Kingdom. Okay, can I just say, you should be looking enthusiastic at this point. That's twice the population of the United Kingdom who are believers, our brothers and sisters in China. It's amazing. And that has doubled between 2004 and 2016. The church is growing like it's never grown before. However, there's a problem. Because not only is the church growing faster than it's ever grown before, so is the world's population. The church is sprinting. Actually, in percentage terms, we're falling back. Because we're having babies faster than people are being converted. So the church is growing faster than it's ever grown before. But there is a great need for the gospel out there. And that need is growing exponentially. But figures, you know, 18 million, 38 million, some people resonate with that. I'd like to tell you a few stories. I was at a... World Evangelical Alliance Mission Council Conference, Mission Commission Conference. And there was a speaker. I don't know his name because they didn't tell us his name. I don't know where he lives and works because they didn't tell us where he lives and works. He was bonkers. In a good way. He told a story of... He was... Um, It was a a Friday, Friday afternoon, which in the country where he was is the day off. Let he who has ears understand. And he was sitting on a a bench while people were just taking their ease and going out for, for a stroll. And he saw a family. And he felt the Lord say to him, you have to pray. Go up to that family and tell them you want to pray for them in a country where Friday is the holy day, you don't normally go up to people and say you're going to pray for them in Jesus' name. He did. And he said to this family, I believe that Jesus is telling me to pray for you. And the family said, our son is incurably ill, he's dying. They were out there on a a Friday afternoon having family time, knowing that their child was going to die. So he said, I'll pray for him in Jesus' name. And he prayed for him, and the son was healed. And the mother and father turned to Jesus, and so did some of their family. And a small church was planted, a small group of believers planted in this very hostile situation. Fantastic. Of course, the authorities weren't so happy. So this chap, whose name I don't know, was put in choky. They stuck him in jail. He is the only person I know who has been thrown out of jail for planting a church in the jail. He witnessed so effectively in that prison that numerous people became believers and they threw him out of jail. It's an extraordinary story, it's not an unusual one. If you ever go to the Philippines, which I recommend you do, it's a very nice place. As you come in through immigration, you know, they have the um, Filipino national channel and foreigners channel. Always longer queue because they have to check you. And there is also a special channel for Philippine overseas workers because a large number of people from the Philippines go to other countries to earn money to send back home. And one of the places that many Filipinos go is the Gulf states. And many of the Filipinos who go to the Gulf states are believers. They go as taxi drivers, laborers, the women go as domestic workers and many of them are Christians and as they rub shoulders with people from the Gulf states whose majority religion certainly isn't Christian, they share the gospel with them. It's a part of the world where it is very hard to be a Christian. Just imagine being a Filipino maid in an Arab household. What it would be like if you're caught sharing the gospel. If you're caught teaching Christian songs to the children. And yet they do. And churches in the Philippines are realizing that they are losing believers to the Gulf who are going there to earn money And so there are churches in the Philippines who are sending their pastors to be taxi drivers and laborers on building sites in the Gulf so that they can care for the other believers who are there as workers. If you ask what a typical missionary is, you might think someone like me, someone Middle-aged, definitely dodgy um, fashion sense, and slightly eccentric. That's what most missionaries are like. These Filipinos and Filipinas who are working in the Gulf, they are missionaries. And just trickles of stories of groups of Arab women meeting together in secret to study the Bible because they've been influenced by their maids, teenagers who've become believers through the influence of the people who looked after them, Arab foremen becoming believers because they've been reached by Christians from the Philippines. Mission has changed dramatically, and God is at work in ways that we just can't imagine. It's next to impossible for Westerners to go and do church planting in the Arab world. It happens, but it's really difficult. Our brothers and sisters from Asia are doing so in a very different way, in a very creative way, and only eternity will tell what they've achieved. One last story. I'll tell you about a man called Twedi Bay Loro. You've got to remember that I'm going to be testing you at the door. Tweli by Loro. Loro is a Kuya. I mentioned the Kuya earlier so you know this story is going to involve me at some point. I come in later. In 1958 the first ever missionaries came to the Kuya area. They came with WEC, used to be Worldwide Evangelization for Christ, now just WEC three letters but they came and they set up in the local town and they went out into all the villages and they preached the good news of jesus and the missionaries came to guabafla which is where laurent and his family lived and they told them how they could have salvation in christ new life in christ how they could be forgiven and restored to god and the people in guabafla chased them away they wanted absolutely nothing to do with this bunch of foreigners apart from Twali Bay laurent who in 1958 became the first ever kuya to become a Christian. Just to put it in perspective, the next kuya who was converted was in 1981. And to save you getting your phones out, that's 23 years later. For 23 years, Baye-Laurent was the only kuya who was a Christian. If he wanted to pray with other people, he had to do so in a different language. Now, being West African, he spoke about 15 languages, so he could do so. But nobody witnessed to him in his heart language, the language that he would talk to his family and those he loved the most dearly. And Laurel knew that he had to share what had happened to him with the rest of the Kuya people. So... On market days market day was different in each village but once a week in a different village he'd get on his bike and he'd cycle out to a village and go to the market and he would preach the good news and tell people about jesus and he became really well known throughout the kuya area and what they called him was yokan loran yokan loran now you all know what that means It means Laurent the Liar. He was the only believer in the people group, and they called him a liar. The reason they called him a liar was because he only had one message. And his message was, Jesus is coming back. You have to turn to Jesus. Jesus is coming back. You have to turn to Jesus. Jesus is coming back. You have to turn to Jesus. Jesus is coming back. And the courier noticed that Jesus hadn't come back yet. So they called him a liar. See, the thing is that Laurent knew that his life had changed, he knew that he had encountered Christ. But he didn't understand a great deal more. He had a burning desire to convey the gospel. But he would have been the first person to admit that he didn't understand it. And from when he first became a believer in 1958, he said he prayed every day for somebody to come and live in his village to translate the scriptures into his language so he could understand the Christian message. From 1958, he prayed every day. In 1988... 30 years later, my wife and I moved into his village. He prayed for 30 years and he got me, a bald bloke from Sunderland. That's got to be a bit of a disappointment. You pray for 30 years, you expect the Archbishop of Canterbury or Billy Graham, but he got me and my wife. I was born in 1958. I know I look younger. That was a cynical laugh over there. (laughs) I was born in 1958. For every day of my life, Laurent was praying for me. Through my childhood till I became a Christian when I was 16, when I went to university and discovered girls and beer and drifted away from the Lord, Laurent was praying for me. As I got my life back on track, met my wife, who spoke French, and was also born in 1958. And we sensed the Lord calling us to mission. Laurent was praying for us. A year before he died, he was able to hold a copy of the Kuya New Testament. You read online, the translators were two British couples. The Saunders and Ourselves. There's a book about the translation and it's about the work of the missionaries. Laurent prayed for 30 years. We wouldn't have done what we did without that faithful prayer since before I was born, through my whole childhood. The growth of the church around the world is through people like Laurent who are faithfully praying, banging their heads against the brick wall trying to share a gospel that they haven't fully grasped sometimes. And now there's a Kuya church in every Kuya village. There are about 5% of the Kuya people are Christians, which is better in evangelical terms than Britain. And yet in 1958, there was only one. The church is growing around the world, and God is at work. There is no two ways about it. Now, at this point, if you are slightly cynical, you might be thinking, yes, the church is growing around the world, but what sort of Christians are they? The phrase, a mile wide and an inch deep, may well be at the back of your mind or even the front of your mind think well church is growing in africa but they're not solid christians like us let me just challenge you there are believers around the world who face famine they face persecution did you read the stuff about christians in nigeria being massacred by Boko haram this week who face illness and yet who hang on to their faith and they trust Jesus in situations that we would find very, very difficult. They may not have all of the theological I's crossed and T's dotted. But they're holding on to Jesus in conditions where we might be tempted to fade away And who are we to judge the church in the rest of the world? Perhaps it's better to be a mile wide and an inch deep than to be a hundred yards wide and an inch deep. Another thing, perhaps you've got concerns about the growth of the prosperity gospel. You may have heard that church in other places parts of africa and parts of asia it's just riddled with the prosperity gospel this message that as long as you do the right things you make the right offerings which normally involve the pastor getting very very rich if you do those things god will bless you god will heal you if you've got a bmw faith you will have a bmw you may have heard that that sort of thing is rife across the world and it is in many places but just step back a bit. If you were that poor, as many of our brothers and sisters in the world are, might you not be tempted to think in those terms too? I'm not saying it's right, but I am saying we need to remember where people are coming from. And remember too that we don't have that prosperity gospel, we have our own version. Where a good career, a good car, a nice house are part of the package and are very often more important to us than Christian discipleship. The next rung on the promotion ladder, getting the latest MacBook, getting a better iPhone. All of those things are part of our life. And I think we need to think twice before we start criticizing others for what they are, for what they're thinking. And the other thing is, where did the prosperity gospel come from anyway? It came from TV preachers from our part of the world. We exported it to Africa and Asia. And we need to take responsibility for that. Now, that is not to knock us. Just to make us think, we shouldn't be quite so quick sometimes as we can be to judge believers in other parts of the world. I really am struck by the way that the apostles in Jerusalem sent Barnabas, who was bound to be positive, in his reports of what happened in Antioch. And as we look at God around the world, and what God is doing around the world, we need to be positive before we're negative. We need to look and accept and glory, glorify God for what he is doing. That doesn't mean being naive. But it doesn't mean we need to just step back before we leap to judgment. The last bit of our passage. Verses 27 onwards, Agabus, a prophet, stands up and says there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. And so the church in Antioch, This slightly weird church full of Greeks takes an offering to send to the mother church in Jerusalem. The center, the place where Jesus had been, the place where Peter and James was, the church in Antioch is now contributing to them, is now helping them. Jerusalem church had sent Barnabas down And Barnabas blessed them, and in return, they provide financial help to the rest of the world. And that is a model for how the church around the world should be. We have a role in helping the church and the rest of the world. We have a role in sending missionaries to bless and encourage, to reach people who are not yet reached for the gospel. We have a role in sending people to help train and equip pastors. But we also have to learn to receive from our brothers and sisters around the world. What difference might it make to the church in Britain if we got a few enthusiastic preachers from Brazil or Latin America, where the evangelical church is growing so fast? What can we learn from them The wonderful thing about the church in Antioch was it gave and it received. For too long, the Western church thinks about mission solely in terms of giving. The big thing we need to do in our generation is learn to receive. And that is far harder. And it'll take a degree of humility that I'm not sure I'm ready to accept. But we have to get there. Let's pray.